Week 10. So week 9, we started looking at the biblical data for the work of Christ. Um, and so we have already looked at prophet, priest, and king, just the, the threefold office of uh, our Messiah, Christ Jesus. And uh, then we took a week and looked at historical theology. What has the church believed about the atonement? And, and many of you will remember that there just wasn't a tremendous amount of clarity early on. Not that the early church denied penal substitution or anything like that. Uh, they, I would argue that they affirmed it. Uh, there's just not need for precision in language because that was just not an issue at debate um, in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th centuries, but it did become one during the Reformation. Um, and then we moved into the biblical data, and so I started off uh, the end of the historical theology week, said that there were eight different categories or themes that I think the Bible presents for us to understand the nature of the atonement, and we looked at the first three of those in week nine. So we are going to finish that up this evening uh, by looking at the last five. Uh, so as I asked in week nine, um, <clears throat> what did the cross achieve? Uh, that first, first couple of few blanks. So we examined the biblical data on the nature of the atonement in order to answer the question, what did the cross achieve? Uh, so we're going to look at nature this week, and Lord willing... We can finish it next week, bring it home uh, by looking at the extent of the atonement. The nature and the extent of the atonement. Bring it home. Uh, all right, so biblical data on the nature of the atonement in order to answer the question, what did the cross achieve? So the uh, first few, do we remember what the first few uh, were? Obedience, uh-huh. That's right, sacrifice. Propitiation. And that's what we got to. Okay, so you will remember, uh, I tried to hammer this point uh, away for at least a few weeks, biblical terms must be determined by their biblical context. Okay, so when we're talking about sacrifice, when the Bible talks about sacrifice, it is not talking about a sacrifice fly in baseball. It's not talking about parents sacrificing for their children. It has a very, very intentional meaning based upon biblical context. So when we looked at obedience, that obedience, the big point behind obedience is primarily the Adam-Christ relationship, Romans 5. Uh, two heads of creation, old creation Adam, new creation Christ. Uh, that obedience needs to be understood in light of Adam and ultimately Adam's failure to obey uh, the covenant commands and Christ being the better Adam. Then we looked at sacrifice and sacrifice is not like I'm sacrificing, uh, you know, my by not spending as much money as I could so that I can put my kids through school, but rather sacrifice in light of Old Testament, particularly Old Covenant Israelite categories. Uh, 
and then we looked at propitiation, which is that hilasterion word is, is the word that's used in the, in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, for mercy seat. So when we think about propitiation, it's not simply the covering or the removal of sin, but, it's, but it involves the turning of wrath, the turning away of wrath through the removal of sin or the taking away of sin. And so uh, if you'll remember, propitiation is not very popular these days because people do not like to see God as, as someone who exerts or executes wrath. Uh, the, much of the idea of God's wrath over the past 100 years, 200 years in particular, uh, starting from 19th century German liberalism, is that God's wrath is very impersonal. Uh, it is Him giving people over to the consequences of their sins rather than Him personally standing opposed to sinners and then executing wrath against sinners who don't repent or executing wrath against His Son who is bearing the sins uh, of His people. But we, we see that propitiation is very much a biblical idea. We looked at Numbers 25, Phineas, who killed the sexually immoral Israelite while he was caught in the act with, a, I believe, a Moabite woman, um, which was strictly forbidden by the covenant, and Phineas propitiated God's wrath and stopped the plague. Uh, so, we looked at obedience, we looked at sacrifice, we looked at propitiation, understanding that these biblical terms have to be determined by biblical categories and stories and themes. In other words, biblical theology has to inform our systematic theology. Okay? Uh, the fourth category that we're looking at tonight is redemption. Redemption. Okay, so redemption, when we're talking about redeeming something, uh, it's easy for us to think of redeeming something in, in light of, like, redeeming a coupon, okay? But what, what, what do you think is the primary Old Testament event that is behind the idea of redemption? It's okay. The Exodus is correct. The Exodus is correct. Robin, for, for those ones and ones of podcasters. Timothy, this is for you, brother. Listening to it again, your wife was correct. So, uh, redemption. Okay. All from Bible talk. Exodus, that's the big, big category behind redemption. Okay, so... Redemption is a marketplace category, marketplace term, okay, means to like buy or buy back. So like redeeming something with a coupon, redeeming a coupon like that has some, some truth to it, but it's not the f- full picture, right, that the Bible's presenting for it. So to buy or to buy back, whether, at, whether as a purchase or as a ransom, so Ultimately, we can think about redemption uh, as purchasing, buying, buying back, payment by price. Okay. Um, Tyus, do you have a question? Would that be like sacrifice? sacrifice? Yes. So sacrifice, I'm going to repeat everything because nobody's talking to the mic. Uh, So 
So Titus is asking about whether or not redemption is tied to sacrifice or similar to sacrifice, and that is exactly right. Uh, what we talked about, Titus, if you'll remember, I know it was two weeks ago, um, and then the week before that, three weeks ago, where we talked about these eight different categories. None of these categories are hermetically sealed. None of them are, are in a vacuum uh, by itself. All of them are informing one another, and they are very, very much interconnected. In the same way that all of God's attributes are connected and inform one another, redemption very much is informed by sacrifice, informed by propitiation. Uh, redemption is informed by obedience, and vice versa. So yes, absolutely. Uh, the question is, is how is redemption accomplished and that's certainly going to be, like, as we look at it, by a propitiatory sacrifice, right? Uh, so, all right, payment by price, ransom, uh, can convey the idea of deliverance from a state of bondage, captivity. Uh, but ultimately, it's deliverance by payment of a price. So it's not just deliverance. So this is, this is going to be really important. Uh, and, and maybe none of you have heard about it, but this is why when we're thinking, thinking about these biblical terms or these biblical events, we have to understand them in light of the redemptive storyline, in light of the Bible's own categories, uh, so that when we look at the Exodus, we don't see that simply as, as a deliverance from an oppressive regime or an oppressive power, because that's how many take the exodus and try to apply it today so for example black liberation theology black liberation theology sees the exodus uh, essentially as as a as a form of which uh, black christians should pursue that kind of deliverance today um, president obama's former pastor was a black liberation theology you also have Latino uh, or Latin liberation theology, ultimately it's we're an oppressed, we're an oppressed culture, we're an oppressed people, and our primary issue is our need to be delivered from these oppressive regimes, and they look at the exodus, and this is what God is doing for us. So oftentimes when you hear the preaching of Louis Farrakhan or, or someone like that, I can't remember Obama's uh, former pastor, um, but you hear a lot of that Exodus language being applied as it relates to racial relations and living under what they would argue is an oppressive regime. They even have feminist liberation theology. Uh, everything, everybody has a liberation theology. Um, <clears throat> Jeremiah Wright, thank you, yes. Jeremiah Wright, uh, pastor of former President Barack Obama. Uh, so, as a case study, is that, the right, is that the right way to understand the Exodus? No. No, it's not. Robin, forcefully, without a microphone, has said no. No, no, too late, too late, too late. It, yeah, it is recording. It is recording. She has said no like nine times into the podcast. Um. Okay, so all the ones and ones. Uh, so how is the Exodus presented in the scriptures? 
ultimately, like if we look at the Exodus, we've talked about this many times, uh, past uh, the, the uh, Egyptian uh, Exodus began with a number of um, plagues against Egypt in order to free Israel. And, I mean, I think you can, you can argue that almost all of those plagues are against specific uh, or a collection of Egyptian gods. Yahweh showing his, his power and authority over the, the false gods of Egypt. But all, ultimately, it is intended to cause Egypt to bend the knee, to capitulate, and to release God's people Israel from slavery and bondage as God had promised Abraham he would do uh, after several hundred years of, of uh, slavery. Uh, but the tenth plague is different than the first nine plagues. The nine plagues are against Egypt and Egypt alone, but the tenth plague is a plague against the entire land. So Israel is not exempted from the plague that is the death of the firstborn son in the home. Uh, and why is that? Because the tenth plague is itself a judgment against sin, against sin of the land. And so this tenth plague is a plague against sin, and because it's a plague against sin, everyone is screwed. Everyone is ruined. And so Israel has no hope of escaping with their firstborn sons from the land unless the Lord delivers them. And so what, what do we see in the Exodus? What is, that, what is that means of deliverance that the Lord provided for the firstborn son specifically? The blood of the lamb in the, in the Passover. Uh, in the Passover... Uh, Titus, as you, as you mentioned earlier, you see, you see a couple of themes coming together in redemption, uh, in this theme of redemption. You see sacrifice, whereas there is a perfect unblemished lamb that is killed in the place of the firstborn of the home, and that's a substitutionary sacrifice because the firstborn's not dying because the lamb is dying. And that Passover lamb is turning aside the, the just wrath of God who is executing judgment against each household in Egypt. And so you see both sacrifice, substitutionary sacrifice specifically, which is going to fill itself out in the Levitical sacrificial system. Uh, you see substitutionary sacrifice, but then you also see propitiation. And that's coming together in the, in the concept of redemption, at least in the Exodus and the Passover. Uh, so we see in the Passover that when Israel is redeemed from the, from the land of Egypt, redeemed from slavery, it is through, that deliverance is through payment by price. It cost something. It was either going to be the firstborn or it was going to be a lamb. And you had to obey. You had to obey uh, the Lord's commands by faith. So obedience, sacrifice, propitiation, redemption, all coming together in the Exodus and Passover. And we see, as we saw with propitiation, uh, that God is the object of redemption. 
Just like God is the, the object of sacrifice, God is the object of propitiation, it is God who has to be satisfied. And we, as we saw in propitiation, it's actually God who is both the subject and the object. It is God the Son taking upon himself his own wrath uh, in order to satisfy his holy justice. But we saw, even, even prior to the Exodus, we saw glimpses of this, that God would take it upon himself in Genesis 15. So if we're seeing Exodus rightly coming across the canon, is, is the book of Exodus, is that the only place where you have Exodus-like language? I saw a couple of shaking of heads, no. No. Robin is good at saying no. Uh, so, she's been working all week, people. So, uh, where, where else do you see Exodus language? It's okay if you're more general. It's, it's okay if you're more general. You don't have to say a specific book. You can, you can say just broadly... Where do you have that in? Yes, okay, yes. I'm a, yes, I'm understanding. Um, mm-hmm. Where else is Exodus language applied? Again, broadly, you don't have to say a specific book. But the Old Testament is divided up into two. The law and the... The prophets. Right. So the prophets describe what God is doing hundreds of years after the Exodus, and they're taking that Exodus language and they're applying it to what the Lord is doing both in that moment, but they're also talking about future realities, right? So Isaiah talks about a Davidic king who's going to bring a new creation where the wolf will lay down with the lamb, and he is going to, the Lord is going to create a highway through which Assyria and Egypt and all the nations are going to be able to pass, very similar to the Exodus. You also have Hosea 11.1 that Matthew picks up in Matthew 2. Out of Egypt I called my son. The son that he's talking about is Israel. And Matthew is like, and that's ultimately about Christ. He fulfilled that. Uh, so, Exodus, as we read the scriptures and we pick up on lang- previous language and previous events that are now being applied to new, new future events, there's greater escalation, there's greater clarity, and this Exodus is tied to a new creation. And with this, with this Exodus, it's, it becomes less of being delivered from an oppressive regime and more about being delivered from what? Robin's like, no. <laughs> almost, almost. Sin, sin, sin and death. An exodus from sin and death. 
So, um, <clears throat> so this idea of redemption, ransom, uh, we talked about the early church having a ransom theory to Satan, where God pays a ransom, Jesus is the ransom to Satan, and that is, uh, Jesus is the hook that the Lord uses to catch, uh, catch Satan uh, with Jesus' bait. But the New Testament never presses this metaphor of redemption or ransom so far. So when we're asking the question, okay, who's the ransom paid to? Well, I mean, the Lord is the object of, of the atonement. Uh, but we never see the New Testament pressing the idea that, that Jesus is, is the ransom that's being paid to Satan. So this redemption is a redemption from sin and death. God himself requires the ransom price. Again, he's the object. And redemption then speaks, if he is the one redeeming us uh, through payment by price, that also entails his complete rights over us as the redeemed, if we're thinking about redemption in terms of marketplace, uh, a marketplace category. So we belong to the Lord, not only because he created us, but because now he has redeemed us and made us a part of the new creation. So we owe him uh, doubly for his creation work. All right. Any any question about so we see we understand Exodus Passover we understand those those ultimately are typological patterns typological categories that are pointing forward and if we're un, interpreting it rightly literally we'll see that this these typological structures are pointing forward to and ultimately find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ and the work that He has done applied to us. Uh, any any questions about uh, redemption before we move to number five? In terms, of like ransom, ransom and payment uh, are are tied to the redemption category specifically. But that ransom, again, not hermetically sealed. It's informed by sacrifice and propitiation and all this kind of stuff. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's all redemption. Primary category is redemption. Mark ten forty five, ransom for many, that's redemption. In in terms of like old covenant commands and stipulations? Yeah, I mean even there the Lord is himself the object. He is the object of covenant faithfulness and obedience. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So, and and to be fair to like Origin and these other guys, like they would not have denied penal substitution. 
Uh, it's probably more of an issue of pressing a metaphor too far and rightly trying to pick up the idea that like Jesus really defeat, defeated Satan. Um, and so, but in terms of ransom, we don't, need to, we don't need to push it so far that we understand redemption as primarily being redeemed and Satan is the object of that redemption. If we're understanding sacrifice, we're not offering sacrifices to appease Satan. We're not, Satan's not being propitiated. Satan's not the object of our obedience. All of these things should be mutually informing one another, just like God's love and justice and holiness and aseity and uh, all, all that stuff informed by one another. So if we, we should understand that it's God himself who's requiring these things and is the object of them. Christus Victor is like, like a modified form of ransom theory, and that has really, like Gustav Allen is the one who, who helped to clarify some of that in the early 20th century. So that's really only in the past 100 years did that get more development. Um, but even then, Christus Victor as a, as a theory is trying to argue that that's the main, main part of the nature of the atonement, which is where we would dispute it. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. But Christus Victor is only accomplished because something else is foundational to the atonement, which is what we're trying to put together here with all these categories. No, good question. Uh, number five, reconciliation. Reconciliation. So we see the atonement is cast in light of reconciliation. We see that in Romans 5. We have peace with God. That's Reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, we've been reconciled to God. We're ambassadors for him now. Uh, I'll go ahead and read 2 Corinthians 5. It's probably the clearest of all the texts. <clears throat> Titus, you and I were talking about this passage earlier. Um, so, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. How so? For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So anywhere the, that Paul or any of the other apostles are talking about us now having peace with God or the explicit language of reconciliation, those, those ideas are speaking to this particular uh, theme of the atonement, namely reconciliation. Um, <clears throat> so the question is, is well first, before we ask, ask the question, Reconciliation first assumes a relationship between two parties, okay? You cannot be reconciled to a stranger, okay? You are reconciled to a person with whom you have a relationship, okay? So if God talks about Christ's work in light of reconciliation, again, that assumes... That assumes that covenant relationship uh, 
that edemic headship, image of God, all of these things tied up into the idea, the reality, the truth that we are, though we are born in Adam and dead in sin, we are still born into a covenant relationship with God. The problem is, is that Adam is our representative and that we have been unfaithful and disobedient and we are guilty in Adam. And God has in Christ taken the initiative to reconcile us to himself though we had broken the relationship and lost the rest of Genesis 2. God has in Christ restored it and through the true image of the invisible God, the last Adam, we have been reconciled to the God who's created us and who has now newly created us through the work of Jesus Christ. So, reconciliation assumes a relationship. You aren't reconciled with a total stranger, which speaks to the idea that we were made, as image bearers, we were made to live in covenant relationship with the Lord. And that's true for every single person because every person is made in God's image. Uh, the question then is, uh, are we reconciled to God primarily or are we simply reconciled to people? And I think that the, I think that the, if we're thinking about social justice kind of ideas, the reality is, is that we are primarily reconciled to God in Christ Jesus, and as a result of having peace with God, we now have peace with one another. Christ has torn down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. We have been reconciled to one another in Christ Jesus because God has reconciled us to himself in Christ. That vertical and horizontal aspects of the image of God have been uh, <clears throat> renewed, redeemed uh, in, in the work of Jesus, the true image of God. So the uh, concept of reconciliation is between God and mankind is throughout the Scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament. Uh, Paul probably is the one who speaks most specifically to it. And you see that Romans 5, Colossians 1, Ephesians 2, 2 Corinthians 5. But at its heart, reconciliation means to restore to friendship or to make up after a quarrel. It's a, it's a family or a personal relationship image. Which is different than justification. Because justification speaks primarily to legal or courtly ideas. Reconciliation is much more familial. Personal relationships. Um, <clears throat> and it's not the same as redemption because redemption is like a marketplace term. So reconciliation is very, very personal. So that's the same. Is it not on? You got to make sure it's green. We should just leave the thing on. Leave the thing on and... Is it the same thing as grace and mercy? What do you mean by that?
Yeah, I, I don't, I mean, I understand what you're saying. Um, I don't know that the scriptures press it so far that, that you would see mercy as primarily, I know you're not saying it's exclusively, but even ex- primarily as, as, a, as a legal uh, issue, um, though, I mean, that's certainly true. Um, but in terms of grace, just unmerited, unmerited favor and kindness, uh, that, that can be shown to strangers. So it's not purely familial, though it's certainly the reality that like, we're made in God's image, and so therefore we, we have covenant relationship with Him. Um, and so, yeah, I, wouldn't, I, I, I understand what you're saying. I wouldn't press it that far. But I'm, like, the distinctions that you're trying to make are the distinctions, I think, that you see between reconciliation and justification and redemption. Um, but again, none of them are, are, are sealed off from one another. They're all mutually informing uh, one another. So, so to reconcile means to bring together or make peace between two estranged or hostile parties. Um, and, and that's like, that's where we get, I mean, probably, I don't know, the, the best, the best picture or best idea of atonement is, I mean, I think coming from the Latin, but it's like at, at one, at one meant is, is what atonement means. And so this idea of bringing two parties that have been divided back together. Uh, and reconciliation. Um, <clears throat> now, while it's not a legal term, it's not a courtly idea, it's not a marketplace term, the reality is, is that Romans 5 discusses peace with God. We now have peace with God. That is cast in light of justification. So we have peace with God. We'll just go ahead and read it. We have peace with God. Uh, Romans 5.1, therefore, since, or because, here's the grounding for the peace, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. So we have peace with God through Jesus Christ because we have been justified by faith. So we can't put too, too much of a division between those two so that even though reconciliation speaks primarily to familiar relationships that, are, that have been brought back together, and that's not as much court, not as much temple, not as much marketplace terminology, the reality is, is that we have peace with God because of a court ruling and justification. Um, <clears throat> so peace with God is tied to legal categories, justification, redemption, propitiation, etc. So, family language and legal language are tied together. They really can't be separated if we're thinking about the atonement. Family language and legal language are tied together. And again, going back to Genesis 1 and 2, it's tied to image of God. Image of God, vertical horizontal relationships, 
And then Genesis 3, our sin, which is disobedience. It's a legal issue. Guilt, corruption, which should inform how we understand how we've been reconciled. So we need to understand reconciliation in terms of guilt, shame, uh, <clears throat> moral rebellion, and uh, sacrifice, justification, redemption, all of that then should inform how we understand how reconciliation actually been brought about. Um, okay, any, any questions about uh, reconciliation before we move on? I'm trying to move quickly so we can get through all five of them. <clears throat> Who accomplishes reconciliation? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, yeah. God accomplishes reconciliation. And who benefits from it? We do. And it's offered to us as a gift. Okay. Uh, we've been reconciled to God. We've been reconciled to one another. Okay, six. Justification. Justification. Yeah, look at that, huh? She didn't say it into the microphone for the podcast listeners, but Robin, Robin said no. <laughs> she said something about spoiler or something. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Okay, justification. All right, so justification is obviously a big deal in, in church history. Uh, Reformation was, this, was really a recapturing of a biblical understanding of justification. And uh, what, was, what was the primary issue in the Reformation as it relates to justification between Roman Catholics and Protestants? How do Roman Catholics argue that someone is justified? Okay, let's, how, how, do, how do Protestants argue that, that we're justified? Yeah. Yes, okay, so often wrongly, wrongly characterized Roman Catholic that they would deny justification by faith. They don't deny justification by faith. It's justification by faith plus the sacraments. What do the Protestants argue? It's justification by faith alone. All right? By faith alone. And then you get by faith alone and Christ alone, the glory of God alone, grace alone, Scripture alone, all, all, the, all the alones, all the solas, all the alones. All right, so justice how do we understand justice? We understand, this is a rhetorical question. Justice is defined, justice, no, justice, justice is defined in terms of God. 
Okay, what, what, do we remember what governance theory, or governmental, excuse me, not governance, governmental theory, Hugo Grotius's theory of the atonement, which is the, which is the Arminian, the, the historic Arminian view of the atonement. Hugo Grotius argued for the governmental theory. No, the earlier one was a rhetorical question. That question was not. <laughs> do, do we remember? It's okay if we don't. It's okay. I can say it. The, the Hugo Grotius said the governmental theory is uh, taxation is theft. No, that is incorrect. Um, all right. So governmental theory argued uh, Grotius rejected penal substitution, that Jesus did not die as our... Uh, substitute under God's penalty and wrath, but namely that God was satisfied and pleased with Jesus's death on the cross, and as a result, he relaxed the law, the demands of the law, in order that people might be forgiven. And so for Grotius, law was something that was external to God something that God appealed to and looked to as the standard. Whereas reformers, Calvinists, uh, have argued that no, 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 no. God himself is the standard. God is the law. His character determines and informs his law. So his character is the standard. So when we think about justification, we think about justice. We've got to understand that justice must be cast in light of God himself, God's character. So a lot of social justice that you hear today is not at all tied to God's character or God's law. It's, most of it's informed by Marxism. So justice must be understood in light of redemptive historical categories. God really cares about social justice. What was the social justice that he commanded in the Old Covenant? Yeah, some examples. There's a primary, there's a primary social justice focus, command from the Lord, but then there are some examples. Poor, yeah, caring for the poor, absolutely. No, I mean, say the two phrases. That's fine. Caring for widows and orphans. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So all of the things that you're describing have something in common. There's a broader, broader theme. And so when the prophets are coming to preach, when the prophets are, are proclaiming uh, God's revelation to the people of Israel who are living in rebellion, the consistent message of the prophets to, to unbelieving Israel is to return to the covenant. Return to the covenant. That's social justice. 
Social justice is returning back to the covenant that you have with the Lord, which entails, which entail, and but this is this is why caring for the widow, the poor, and all this kind of stuff. The Israelites during that time were not caring for the poor. They were not caring for widows. They were not caring for the sojourner. They were not doing any of those things. Why? Because they were not caring at all about being faithful to the covenant that they had with their God. And so the big, big theme in preaching from Old Testament prophets is Israel return to the Mosaic covenant. Return back to faithfulness to it which entails all kinds of implications about caring for the poor, caring for the oppressed, not showing favoritism, not taking bribes, all of these things. So justice, when, we, when it comes over to, to New Covenant, New Testament, justice, justice needs to be understood in terms of obedience. Like Adam Christ, that first thing that we talked about. To be just is to be obedient and faithful to the covenant stipulations and commands. To be just is tied to legal and now understood in light of sin after Genesis 3. Uh, Romans 3, let's read that. Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus, or in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. All right, so already in just a couple of verses, you've heard justified, redemption, propitiation. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All right, so justification. We need to understand that uh, to justify does not mean uh, to make righteous, okay? You're not, justification is not God making us righteous, but declaring us righteous. It's a legal, legal uh, declaration. It's, it's uh, akin to courtroom not guilty. So justification is not, we can't blend it with sanctification. Justification is not changing a person's character and making them more righteous. That's sanctification. And that's progressive. At least one aspect of it is progressive. That's how we primarily understand it. But justification is constituting righteousness by declaration, a legal declaration. So Romans 3.26, what Paul has said here is that in former times, right, he passed over sins, divine forbearance. What is Paul talking about? 
passing over sins and, and his divine forbearance. Passover is one of them. What else? Everything leading up to Christ. Like, did the, did the blood of animals and, and bulls, goats, all that kind of stuff, did that actually take away sin? No. No, it was pointing forward, right? God was not looking at the animal for his saints. He was looking forward to the cross. He was looking to Christ, right? So he passed over former sins. He did not judge people according to their sins, even though Jesus had not yet come, okay? How could God be just by overlooking sin with clear sinners without a real atonement and be one who justifies people by not providing an atonement that could actually save them? Well, in, this, in His Son, Christ Jesus. So God demonstrates His justice by executing His wrath for all time, all sin, past, present, and future, executing His wrath against His Son, and, and justifying His people by faith alone in Christ alone. So that's, I mean, that's commonly referred to as the problem of forgiveness. How can a just God forgive? If He forgives, He's not just. If He's just, He can't forgive. Well, by me being legally declared righteous, legally being declared not guilty by being hidden in Christ by faith alone. And God doesn't overlook my sins and just sweep them under the rug like the Socinians argued. He doesn't simply like relax the requirements of the law and allow people to kind of skirt through without being able to keep it. Jesus kept it all, and my penalty is placed on him all of his obedience and righteousness is now credited to me, and I stand justified before the Lord. I'm a justified sinner in Christ. So, if we want to understand, you want us, what is justice? Somebody asks you, what is justice? The first, first thing that you tell them, the cross. The cross is the supreme act of justice. That is God executing His perfect, holy, loving justice on His Son, who is our willing substitute. So, like, as I just mentioned, Socinianism, uh, the Socinians, their efforts were to make salvation the result of God just turning away and not holding anything against us. And that is an immoral God. That is an immoral judge. That is not a just judge. We, we want judges to be just. It's just that we don't want them to be just towards us. <laughs> right? But thankfully, God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All right, there are lots of issues as it relates to justification, and we are not going to go into all of them. So any questions about, about justification before we move to number seven? Hopefully we can finish up pretty quickly with the last two. Excellent. Number seven, Christus Victor. Also, uh, conquest. All right, I'll write it. 
Christus Victor, or Conquest. Uh, this is um, Christus Victor as the primary emphasis or focus of the atonement is primarily argued by uh, open theists. Open theists like uh, Greg Boyd are the biggest proponents of, of uh, Christus Victor. I mean, Greg Boyd actually has some good stuff on Christus Victor. It's just that you can't trust really anything that he's writing um, <clears throat> about most everything, including uh, God's nature. Uh, so I would not steer you towards that. Uh, but the cross work of Jesus is certainly, is certainly pictured, characterized in the Scriptures as a victory over Satan and the demonic. Like he is the one who has overcome all the cosmic forces and our enemies. Like he, he, he does kill Goliath, sin and death. He does take down Satan. That's Hebrews 2. He has ripped away the fear of death that Satan has uh, held over God's people uh, and held them in slavery. Jesus has ripped that away from him by death being swallowed up. And Jesus put death to death. Uh, but... Uh, Genesis 3, like Genesis 3, 3.15, like that's, that's the first indication of like Christus Victor. Like the, the promise of a son who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Like that's Christus Victor. Satan is a real enemy. It's just uh, that he has real power because of sin and death. Um, so, it's an excellent, rich biblical theme. I mean, love, 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 love Christus Victor. Love conquest themes. He really has overcome all of the enemies. Christians do not have to be frightened or threatened by the demonic or any of these things. Jesus has conquered all. He really has. Uh, but we do not need to understand that Satan is the object of the atonement. That's pushing it too far. It is not ransom theory to Satan. Okay? He is not the recipient of the ransom. Sin and death gave Satan power over humanity. And sin and death is an issue that's primarily against the Lord. That is God's penalty for rebellion, is death. Uh, another, big, another big advocate, just because I know y'all care about it. Um, Christus Victor is uh, N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright. His major push for the atonement is like a modified, modified Christus Victor. Um, he's flirted with rejecting penal substitution, but he has kind of come around recently and said that he affirms it. But he's primarily like Christus Victor, uh, which is also part of the reason why you see oftentimes with these Christus Victor guys, they're also, they kind of flirt with this liberation theology stuff too. Because it's the powers that are being conquered, including oppressive regimes and stuff. Um, so, <clears throat> let's see, Colossians, we'll read Colossians 2 real quick. Colossians 2. 
Colossians 2, 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So there you've got, you've got obedience. You've got redemption, like record of debt. You've got legal demands, justification. Like in Colossians 2 right there, you've got obedience, uh, redemption, justification, Christus victor, sacrifice. All of it's connected. Okay, last one. Uh, any questions about Christus victor? An important, important aspect of the atonement. Maybe we give it too little attention. Um, but it is an important part of what, what Christ has done. He really has defeated Satan on all the demonic. She said no. She just raised her hand just to say no. <laughs> all right. Okay. Robin said no again. Uh, all right. Number eight. Uh, moral example. All right. So, moral example. Totally lame all by itself. So before we jump into moral example, what I want you to notice is that if you, if you overemphasize one of these particular themes without seeing it in light of all the other themes that Scripture has used to describe the atonement, then you're going to be unhealthy. You're going to have an unhealthy atonement diet, so to speak. Okay? So if you overemphasize moral example, you're going to go with Peter Abelard and say, oh, it's moral influence theory. Jesus came and did all the things that he did and died on the cross in order to help us to be moral, upstanding, good people. And Oh, yeah, sure. You could be Hindu and say, yeah, I'll worship Jesus too. Jesus would be one of, one of my hundred million gods. Yeah. Uh, so if you emphasize too much moral example, you're going to go Peter Abelard. If you're going to emphasize too much Christus victor or conquest, you're going to go with either Gustav Allen or uh, Ransom Theory to Satan in the early church. Uh, if you too heavily emphasize reconciliation, you might, you might go with more modern ideas of social justice uh, blended with Marxism. Uh, we need all of these ideas to inform one another. Uh, but with moral example, uh, Scripture really does help us to see and really does present the cross as a moral example for us. I mean, how often do the apostles tell you to look at Jesus, imitate him, pick up your cross and follow him, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, uh, probably the best example uh, is Hebrews 12. Hebrews 11, you've given, been given this whole hall, hall of faith, right? Like starting primarily with Abraham, Abraham and Sarah. And then going through Moses and David and all these guys and some God used to shut the mouths of lions. Others, others were, were 
killed and sawn in half. And, and they did it all in faith, not seeing God's promises uh, being fulfilled because apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Well, the pri- the Hebrews 11 is wonderful, but the main point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make with Hebrews 11 is he's trying to get to Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. Because the primary example for us in terms of uh, imitation, primary example for us uh, for moral, holy living. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the, faith, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our, of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Hey, are you weary? Look at Jesus. Jesus did not grow weary. Don't grow weary. Hey, are you really suffering? Are you suffering tremendously, particularly for the faith? Consider Jesus, who looked at the cross and it was his joy to endure it in order that he might save us from our sins. Jesus is the supreme example of holy, obedient living. He is our primary moral example. So we cannot be so like, oh, no moral influence theory, like, oh man, boot that. Because we often say, oh, you know, often here, Jesus was a wonderful moral example, moral teacher. And, And yes, Amen. He is the example. But he also said you must worship him. So that, he's also different from Gandhi and all the others. Uh, he demands your worship. But he is also, because he was a man, he, he demands that we follow him and we imitate him. So, um, <clears throat> yeah. We can't overemphasize the subjective aspect of the atonement, um, like moral example, but we can't go to we can't we can't pendulum swing to the opposite and not look at Jesus as a moral example, uh, because Jesus is presented by the scriptures as the supreme example for us to follow. Um, <clears throat> so, um, those are the uh, those are the eight. Themes, okay? So, when we are looking at... Oh, man. We're going to do it. We are going to do it. We're going to get through all these. All right, so, when we look at obedience, and we look at sacrifice, and we look at propitiation, and we look at redemption... We look at reconciliation. Uh, We look at justification. And then we look at conquest. Or Christus Victor. 
and then we look at moral example. Uh, we've got eight themes. We've got eight themes that have been clearly, clearly taught in the Scriptures, clearly taught in the New Testament. Uh, not starting in the New Testament, starting in the Old Testament. Moral example, look at the Old Testament saints. Look to Jesus. Uh, obedience, look at Adam. Look at Jesus. Sacrifice, look at Old Testament cult, uh, Levitical system. Look at Jesus. Propitiation, same thing. Passover, Exodus, redemption. Uh, all of these ideas, we need to understand them across the, the storyline of Scripture, but all eight of these categories are clearly presented by the apostles and by Jesus himself as important aspects of the atoning work of Jesus. And so as we're putting together uh, a theology of the atonement to understand what is the nature of the atonement, what is the heart of the atonement, the only particular view, I would argue, uh, of the atonement that adequately captures all of these themes in light of biblical and theological categories and understands all of them rightly put together would be penal substitution. Okay? So when we're looking at all of these together, penal substitution... best explains really the heart of the atonement. So how does how does um, penal substitution best or how does penal substitution explain obedience? What are the two important people in obedience? Christ is one of them. Who's the first one? Adam. Adam, Christ. Okay. Tied to obedience, covenant commands, covenant disobedience, sin and death. We talked about Jesus' active obedience and his passive obedience. He, he lived an obedient life in obeying and fulfilling all of the commands of the law. And he was also obedient passively in his death by taking upon himself the curse of covenant disobedience. So, penal substitution, again, that best explains obedience. Yeah, Titus. Start, start over. I didn't hear the first part of your... You mean God, he's... As God, he's obeying himself. The Son, yes, he is enduring his own wrath. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Would that be 
Uh, no, because the cross is itself the, the punishment for covenant violations. Uh, I would say that what you're describing is best captured by propitiation, by taking his own wrath. Um, but yes, I mean, right, right idea. But again, all of these, not hermetically sealed. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, the substitution part is capturing the passive obedience aspect of that, yes. And then the active obedience is capturing everything Adam should have done. We're, at, we're understanding that in terms of what Adam should have done, what Adam failed to do, and the penalty that Adam incurred because of that, and then everybody, all the other covenant partners after him. On our behalf, yes, absolutely. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Again, federal headship, Adam Christ, heads of humanities, old creation, new creation. So they're operating on behalf of their people. That's, that's obedience. Uh, sacrifice. Sacrificial system. Heavy, heavy on the penalty. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, yes. I can't look at some of you sometimes. <laughs> oh, yep. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> Robin said no. Uh, propitiation. It was Robin who I was looking at. Robin immediately put her head down and began to write. Uh, propitiation. How's, how penal substitution accurately capturing the idea of propitiation? Yes. 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 And penal substitution argues that God is the object and the subject. Mm-hmm. Christus Victor doesn't argue that. Governmental theory doesn't argue that. Only penal substitution argues that God is the object that needs to be satisfied, and he is the subject, the one who is doing the satisfying. Yes, my sweet love, Elise Powell. My dear. Uh, I mean, it's uh, similar. Yeah, similar. Yeah, so he is the subject of the atonement in that he is the one that is doing it. So he is the justifier, and he is also the object and that he is the one that's demanding the, the just uh, status of people in order for them to be right with him. So yes, in a, in a, yeah, in a way, yes. Lots of people will dispute. Lots of people dispute penal substitution because they reject that that God is the object of the atonement. They would say they would certainly say He's the subject, 
because he's God the Son. But they would say God is not the object of the atonement. Something else is. That informs all the other ones. Yep. It's the heart of the atonement. They would argue is, a, is the primary heart of the atonement. That's right. Yep. Yep. So Christus Victor, we would say, yeah, absolutely Christus Victor. But it's not the primary focus, center, heart of the atonement. Penal substitution best... best instructs or illustrates the the conquest or Christus Victor theme. Why? Because Satan has power over us because of sin and death. Penal substitution argues that God is taking care of sin and death. He is taking care of his own just wrath, and therefore he has disarmed the rulers because he's taken away the only thing that they had against us, which was accusations that were mostly true about us being terrible people. We have peace with God, reconciliation, because we've been justified by faith. We've been declared righteous through the work of Jesus, who the great exchange, 2 Corinthians, he became sin, who knew no sin, and we became Righteousness. Mm -hmm. All right, so what did the cross achieve? The heart of it, the nature, penal substitution. And penal substitution informs all the other ones. Christus victor is true. Yeah, it's just not the heart of the atonement. Moral influence, yeah, of course. It's not the heart of the atonement. Uh, Ransom, absolutely. It's not the heart of the atonement. So, yeah. When, when you put all of these aspects together as the Bible puts them together, penal substitution best describes what all of these things are arguing when put together. wouldn't say that. I, I would say that when you rightly understand each of these themes, which carry with it a whole lot of biblical ideas and like realities from old to new, when you're putting it together, that's when what we would argue for today is penal substitution, that that particular view is the thing that explains all of these. So when 
Yes. Right. Yes. They're rejecting penal substitution. If they're saying it's the heart of the atonement. But they, would, they wouldn't deny justification. They wouldn't deny justification, but I don't know how they could ex explain it. And a lot, a lot of these different, a lot of these themes are, are redefined, re-understood. If penal substitution is rejected, which is why you have um, obedience is redefined in governmental theory by God having a law that's external to Him that He relaxes. Well, that's not how the biblical data presents obedience. That's not how it presents justification either. Uh, propitiation, people don't like. Penal substitution, they want, to, they want to say that propitiation should be translated expiation because they want to take away the wrath. But like if, you, if you're taking all of the biblical data and you're rightly synthesizing it in light of biblical theological categories, the, the, the atonement theory that is argued for today that best encapsulates everything, or really not best, it actually captures everything, is penal substitution. And out of that, you understand, oh, moral influence. I, I can actually more have followed Jesus because my, his obedience is my obedience. I've been reconciled to God. I have peace with God. I've been justified. Like, I have a, I have a sacrifice on my behalf, so I actually can obey him and follow him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you're looking at it, the biblical data has shown us different snapshots, yes. views of this. Yes. And so we're looking at it from different angles, and we're seeing all the big themes from the different pictures. And yeah. when we fail to hold, when we, when we elevate one of the snapshots to the center, we've denied the whole, the whole dimension of it. Right? Yeah. It, no, it's, it's, it's a wonderful metaphor. The only reason I laugh is because New Testament scholar Joel Green uses that same metaphor to argue for a kaleidoscope view of the atonement. And it's the kaleidoscope view that all of it's true, absolutely. Not penal substitution, though. Not penal substitution. So he's, he's arguing that these are all the perspectives, but there is no 3D object. There, it's, it's all-encompassing, but not that. Yeah, there you go. Amen. Amen. All right, uh, so, so we're not arguing that penal substitution is the exclusive reality in the atonement. We're just arguing that it's the center out of which everything else. It's almost like a, like a wagon wheel hub, which all the, all the spokes come out of that. There you go, baby. Uh, all right, so penal substitution is the center. Very similar in like so, uh, salvation. Sorry, I'm going to use the... The theological term, uh, like salvation, union with Christ is the center out of which justification, sanctification, adoption, uh, reconciliation, all the other uh, spirit indwelling, all the other benefits of salvation come out of that and form a wheel. Penal substitution does the same thing in terms of atonement. So out of penal substitution, Christ is victor. Moral example, you know. So, all right, let's, uh, let's, let's read a few things that um, 
I want to read you what um, G.I. Packer, G.I. Packer has. What I'll, what I'll do is I'll, I'll print out uh, what J.I. Packer has said and just give it to you so that you have it next week because you should, you should have it. Uh, if you, if you want to read, you can Google this and read this short, well, I say short, it's like 40 or 50 pages, uh, but it's an article. It's not a book, you people. Y'all have really low standards. <laughs> All right, J.I. Packer has written an article called What Did the Cross Achieve? I highly recommend you reading it. What Did the Cross Achieve? Um, I, I think what we'll do is we'll stop there. We'll, I think we'll have enough time next week to finish up uh, a few things about the nature of the atonement, and then we'll move into the extent of the atonement, and then we should be able to wrap up tomorrow, or not tomorrow, next week, with the, with the last, last week, week 11. So, uh, next week we'll talk about, uh, was, was the cross necessary? Uh, some, some would say that um, the cross wasn't necessary. Some would then argue that... Um, well, God chose to do the cross, and so therefore it was necessary, but he could have chose something else. He, co- he could have chosen to save us in a different way other than Christ dying. He could have forgiven us another way. And then there are others who are going to argue that, well, God did choose to forgive us through the cross. Uh, he could have killed Jesus in a different way, but he could not have saved us apart from the death of his son. So we'll talk, about, we'll talk about that next week. Hypothetical necessity, consequent, absolute necessity. You might be surprised. There, are some, um, there might be some spiritual heroes of yours who would say that, that if God hadn't chose to, to do the cross, he could have saved us apart from the death of his, of his son. So I'll leave you in suspense. In suspense. All right, any, any, any questions?